0: And welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey.
1: And I'm Emily.
0: and on today's episode we are doing a continuation of sorts of one of our episodes released a few weeks ago you might recall if you are a frequent listener of national treasure hunt that we spent our episode a few weeks back talking about comparisons and parallels between national treasure and national treasure 2 book of secrets and you might recall that at the end of that episode Emily, let all y'all know that the reason we didn't go into detail on a very important part of these films is because we'd be covering it in depth in another episode in the future, and that episode is today. That topic, of course, is, Emily?
1: Villains!
0: Yes, we are dedicating an entire episode today to an in-depth analysis of the villain characters in National Treasure and Book of Secrets. But of course, before we get into the weeds of this episode, Emily, I would love for us to reprise the new segment... That we kicked off in our last episode, our Screams from Parkington Lane. This, of course, is a new segment we have on our show inspired by the Game of Roses podcast where we fall deep down into the pit of Parkington Lane to explore how our obsession with the National Treasure Film franchise just pops up in random parts of our daily lives. And so I think, Emily, uh, you and I both have Screams to share this week. Is that correct?
1: That is true.
0: Okay, do you want to go first?
1: Sure. So first, I'd like to start off by saying, Ah! So guys, my (laughs) scream is that today, as we were getting ready to prep this episode, I was messing around with some Skype backgrounds, which are always a grand old time, and we found out that there are a lot that are dedicated to software, which we're a little confused by, but regardless... We happened to I happened to come across one that was the National Archives building. And both Aubrey and I, Aubrey definitely a little more than me, was amazed by the fact that this was a default background for Skype. At which point I was like, well, here, let me get one of my pictures. So I started going through the pictures that I took when we went on our own national treasure hunt. And I then notice, when I got to my National Archives picture, that the two images look very very similar. So I, I tried to apply that background and realized that I had previously applied the background as a custom background <laughs> <laughs> for Skype. And I am therefore today using the National Archives background for um, this uh, recording session. So we are in, you might as well say that we are in the hallowed halls yeah so to speak
0: and and we may or may not have taken a screenshot of Emily in front of this national archives background which we may or may not be sharing on our social media when this episode comes out and that is code for we will definitely be sharing that on our social media when this episode comes out but my scream emily um is really related to the fact that for some reason lately I don't know, you could say since July of 2020 may or may not correspond to the time we started this show. Hmm. National treasure seems to be a default topic of conversation for me in really random and inopportune times. So, for example, I have a weekly lunch... Meeting—it's not a meeting. It's—it's just—it's with colleagues. It's work-related. It's professional, right? Um, on Wednesdays usually, and we discuss usually things that aren't super work-related. I mean, things come up here and there, but I can tell you for sure, the topic of conversation is not national treasure until it is. And <laughs> <laughs> so literally last week we're on this weekly call I jumped on late and my colleagues and friends were discussing um the musical Oklahoma, okay? So as yeah. I, as I join the 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 Zoom they said Aubrey, what are your thoughts on Oklahoma? Now, I didn't know the context of this. I thought they were talking about the state. I was like, I don't know. I've never been there. But I did see recently a meme going around the Internet asking questions about what the long part of Oklahoma, you know, the arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this meme was like, what even is there? And I was like, true facts. I don't know the answer to that. What even is there? And how did that happen? And then somehow I find myself saying, sounds like a mystery for Nick Cage to solve in National Treasure 3, at which point the entire conversation devolved into a discussion about our podcast, Emily. So that is my scream from Parkington Lane. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you all for indulging us. Uh, By listening to our screams, Um, uh, once again, please share with us your own screams if National Treasure finds its way into your life in really unexpected ways. And if you want to share them with us, Emily, tell them how they should do that.
1: You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at N.T. Hunt Podcast. You can hear us and find us for your beautiful listening ears on iTunes, Spotify, Go down that hipster route. We got you covered on SoundCloud. Still, for those of you who are out there, you know, looking to just be a little cooler, we we got you covered. Um, Go ahead, follow, subscribe, rate, review, like, comment, do any and all of those things on whatever platforms you can do those various things on. Let us know your thoughts.
0: (laughs) Yes, please do. And without further ado, one of those things that we want to hear your thoughts about is the topic of villains in the National Treasure film franchise. And so just so you all know how this episode is going to go down, we are going to go through um, several different categories, I would say, to consider both of our villains. And You know, have a discussion. We're going all AP English literature here once again, uh, comparing and contrasting the two. And then we will end on a little bit of a conversation about what their storylines mean for a potential National Treasure 3. So. With that to look forward to let's get this party started. Of course, today in a conversation about our villains, we would be remiss if we didn't reintroduce you to those villains and Emily's obsession with one of them. Did I say that out loud?
1: Yep, that would be true. So I will introduce you to the two villains. I'm going to do it in reverse order of the movies because I want to save the best for last, as one does. In National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets, our villain is Mitch Wilkinson, played by the notorious Ed Harris. And then coming in... First place in National Treasure 1 for many reasons, not just because it's the first movie. We have Ian Howe, which is such a cool name, played by none other than Sean Bean, who I may or may not have a bit of an obsession with. And wow, guys, I mean, he is the quintessential villain, I would say.
0: And we will get really deep into that assessment in just a few minutes. I feel like I'm gonna have many thoughts about a lot of things Emily is going to say today and I'm I'm just really looking forward to it. I I just gotta <laughs> I mean first of all Ian Howe, really cool name, really interesting name. I don't know. It's better I'm than, than
1: like a... Mitch Wilkinson.
0: They both seem like pretty regular names to me. Just say it. Anyway, anyway, let's start this off by you know really where I think you should start off with any character analysis, which is the character's background, okay, so let's talk a little bit about Ian and Mitch and what we know about them and how their backgrounds play into the National Treasure storylines, which I think is especially important, I should say, Emily, to do for this franchise because we've already spent so much time talking in past episodes about how character backgrounds are so carefully curated in these movies to play an important justifying role in the films, okay? So... To start off, I think it's fair to say that both Ian and Mitch are shady and violent businessmen with a series of henchmen. Do we at least agree there?
1: Violent is a strong word to use for Ian Howe, but, you know, it, uh, continue. You, sure. can, you can try to persuade me.
0: I, I guess I'll do that. I, I can certainly try to persuade you. But I guess violent, it really... Maybe more has to do with the fact that they condone violent behavior. I would actually argue both of them aren't the most directly violent themselves, but they have people to do that work for them, you Mm know? So in any case, we do know um, that Ian, of course, has arranged a number of operations of questionable legality, one of the great (laughs) lines early on in the film, right? Um, We don't actually know much about Ian's background, although I'm sure Emily has an entire fanfic story in her brain Telling us all about his background And that sounds like an ep- um, a story for another episode <laughs> Just gonna say right off the bat um, What we do know about Ian of course Is that he met Ben a few years prior To the timeline of National Treasure And they're a little bit of friends We'll get back to that in just a moment On the other hand Mitch Wilkinson We know a lot uh... of We <laughs> Yes same Emily same We know a lot more about Mitch than we do about Ian. So Mitch studied history at the Virginia Military Institute. He's also an international arms dealer. And I'm like, shouldn't you be in jail? I don't know. Um, We also know that he ran a bunch of mercenary type operations. He's a trained black market antiquities dealer. Again, jail question mark. Um, And what I will say is it, it really feels like we're being given all this information to justify his actions. Just like Ben's background and how that justifies everything that we see Ben do. So, Aubrey,
1: uh, I have a question. Yeah, please. So, all of this information, if this is known about Mitch, mm-hmm. when he goes up and he interrupts so rudely Ben's wonderful lecture... Yeah, And goes, you know, this is the Missing Booth Diary page and whatever accent he has. How were people not more like, oh, wait, let's be a little questionable, this dude. Or were they?
0: Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to give you two answers. The first answer is the academia answer that you and I can both relate too, because we come from science backgrounds, which is Mitch Wilkinson is that old professor in the back that just has to ask a question and is not going to be accepting of any answer that you give as the person speaking at the seminar. You know, you know the person I'm talking about?
1: I do indeed.
0: And do you agree that that is Mitch in this case?
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. Okay, I can see that.
0: <laughs> and and we hate Mitch. So this all really it fits beautifully. Um, but <laughs> in all honesty, for people who have absolutely no idea what Emily and I are talking about right now, um, the 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 truth is we see some skepticism and that skepticism, interestingly enough, comes from the FBI in this case. It's not coming from the Library of Congress curators that Mitch is interacting with, but it is coming from our good old friend, Agent Sedesky. And it really feels like Mitch's background is being used to justify that skepticism. Um, which to be fair, I criticize Sidesky's intellect all of the time So he probably does need all of this information To actually be skeptical of someone He should be skeptical of <laughs> Just saying I don't know um, So no uh, With that said um, So Mitch and Ian Are both these sketchy people Right um, Totally separately But a nice little nod to history And the storylines of the film Both Ian and Mitch are sort of a representation of the losing side of the war that their respective films revolve around. Okay. What? So... What? Yeah, okay. Let me put it this way. National Treasure, the first movie, really surrounds itself with Revolutionary War era history, right? The British lost that war... Ian is our villain and Ian is British.
1: Well, that's good. Sean Bean is British.
0: Well, that's why they cast Sean Bean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been because of his phenomenal acting, but sure.
0: I mean, it was, it was a really questionable decision given that they knew their villain was not going to die. He was honestly better <laughs> cast in the second movie where the villain was going to die. But I digress on this important point. Con- on the contrary, in National Treasure 2, our plot revolves around the Civil War, okay? The South lost the Civil War, and Mitch is Southern. He has a Southern accent. He was even related to a Confederate general. What?
1: Oh my gosh, Aubrey, my mind is absolutely blown by this.
0: I would be more shocked about the whole scenario if it was an app, like just a happy accident. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, as I mentioned before, I really think that the biggest difference in the character backgrounds between these villains is their relationship with Ben, right? So. Ian is Ben's financer and friend. I mean, we know that they play poker together. That's like a running joke slash test of whether or not Ben is lying throughout the whole first movie. Um, And, you know, they even end up directly helping each other in the intrepid scene of the first movie, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I'd argue that they're not like, obviously they're not like Riley and Ben level friends right because that's a special bond that only those two men can have with one another and i argue it's because riley's on one side of it but it it seems like for me this is the kind of the kind of friendship where it's not just like a friendship of convenience it's also like a friendship of i see you for who you are and i accept you anyway because you might be useful <laughs>
0: It's a very pragmatic friendship between Ian and Ben. I
1: think that's the word.
0: <laughs> I think no that's that's really well put whereas in Mitch's case we have no relationship between Mitch and Ben from from the get-go. Mitch is a total outsider who's lured in by the fame of Ben that he accrued thanks to the Templar treasure discovery and he never even builds up a a real friendly relationship at any point. It's always adversarial. He's always the outsider. Even in the scenes where we have to cooperate, you know, he has to cooperate with Ben at the end. It's always a very tenuous feeling. Yes, Emily?
1: So, you know, you say he's always an outsider and stuff, and, you know, I'm down to hate Mitch Wilkinson as much as the next guy, or as much as the next person. <laughs> but... What Like, what about the fact that he had Abigail's phone number? Because, yeah. like, you remember that one time he called Abigail and they, like, never explained it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I do. I do recall that. I am really – if I ignore the fact that their little drinks date really felt very date-like in an odd way – I feel like you can justify their meeting based on the fact that he had presented the diary page to the library of Congress and she works for the library of Congress. So he was sort of meeting with her on what we could assume was a professional call, right? More of like a, so have you found anything? I'm pretty sure he actually says something to that, to that effect of like, did you find anything in your analysis with the page? So um, the, execution of that meeting definitely felt more date-like than professional. True. Um, And he was definitely crossing some boundaries, like, listening in on her private conversation, but he is a villain after all. Um, so when we think about villains, the next thing that I think we should talk about here, Emily, is the quintessential component of any villain, which is his or her motive, which I argue, Emily, genuinely could not be any more different between Ian and Mitch. So, I think that's fair. Yeah. So let's start with the, the simple one. Again, we don't have a lot of background on Ian, but I think it's fair to say that his entire motivation as this investor, this, let's say, sketchy investor, is money and greed, right? He wants the money. And we even know that because at, near the end of the film, when Abigail and Riley have to strike a deal with Ian – to get Ben out of FBI custody, they had to basically tell him, you help us get Ben out of custody and you can keep the treasure. He just wants the treasure. He wants the money.
1: Yes, and Aubrey, so which I would argue is a slightly redeeming quality for the villainous Ian Howe. Because, you know, we think of Ben, right, as a treasure hunter. We we know that is a component of who he is. We accept that part of him. We even you know we we base our whole story around that and really see it as a fundamental part of who he is my question is why don't we see treasure hunter as a fundamental part of who Ian is maybe if we gave him the same leniency in terms that we or that we give Ben in terms of him just hunting down the treasure You know, their morals might be a little different. The way that they get there might be a little different. He might not want to be in it for the nobility of the find or the same moral reasons that Ben is, but he still could just be a treasure hunter. And I think that is something that is noble in and of itself.
0: Even when... To acquire that treasure, he's willing to probably destroy the Declaration of Independence, kill people, i.e. the Charlotte explosion, and countless other situations where he, oh, for example, endangered Abigail's life, having her hang off of a food truck as he swerves throughout the streets of Washington, D.C. I don't know. When you say they're morals are a little different i beg to differ they're a lot different
1: <laughs> gotta new what to do aubrey for the love of the hunt
0: but the other thing that's really different here is mitch's motive okay so we know that mitch's motive in book of secrets is really as emily likes to put it fame um as i like to put it a chance for his family, the Wilkinson family, to be remembered in history. And I like to put it that way because that's how Mitch puts it. Um,
1: <laughs> okay. So- <laughs> that felt like a personal attack. <laughs> I feel like it's one and the same. The Mitch or the Wilkinson family having a place in history is fame. That's it's, true? it's like it leads to fame. I'm just taking that next logical step in the storytelling process. I'm just right. not repeating what the characters are saying. I am right. intuiting And taking that further intellectual step, Aubrey.
0: Yeah, so you would be, and just to, you know, we've already referenced Game of Roses early in the episode, right, with our screams, which is a Bachelor podcast. I'm just going to make an analogy here for anyone else who's a Bachelor fan like myself um, and say you would be watching The Bachelor and saying these people are here for the wrong reasons. They just want the Instagram followers. They don't care about love. They just want the fame. Would you would you concur?
1: Well, given that I don't watch that show or listen to that podcast, I I I'm not quite sure, but it, the the logic seems like it it could follow through.
0: Good, good. Well, you might not have a chance to watch it because that franchise is in some trouble right now. Total story for another not episode, a whole other podcast. I right? Anyway, Back to Mitch being fame-hungry. We even see a really extreme scene at the end of Book of Secrets where Mitch sacrifices himself on the condition that he be named as a discoverer of Cibola, right? If he wanted the money like Ian did, he never would have done that, of course, right? Um, So with that said, this is technically a more complex and... I would say unique motive even if anyone who listens to our show knows that I hate this motive, I find it really weak. I have to admit that it's more y- unique than Ian's motive in the in the first film. I feel like Emily you're going to have something to say about that.
1: I feel like Ian's motive is it's deep down there. It's it's in his heart. His to be motive greedy. to to find the treasure. For whatever purpose he's going to use it for.
0: For money?
1: (laughs) For whatever purpose he's going to use it for. In his heart, he just wants to find the treasure.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to make another argument for the depth of Mitch's motive, okay? And that is the fact that You know, we know Mitch is descended from Confederate General Albert Pike. And Emily, as you taught us in episode 12 of our show, uh, General Pike was very low ranking in the Confederate military. And from this movie's perspective, Pike failed In a tasking from Queen Victoria, basically, to find Cibola for the Confederacy. For whatever reason, Queen Victoria in Book of Secrets gave these instructions, these coded instructions to Pike to be able to find Cibola, you know, win the Civil War for the South. Pike failed, right? And Mm -hmm. so maybe Mitch is really motivated by this fact that he needs to finish the job. He wants to make a mark because his family already failed to make that mark. Right? If his family had succeeded, the course of American history would have been changed, again, based on this movie's plot line. And so he's trying to right that familial wrong, if you will. So um, this I will, is...
1: Aubrey. But...
0: <laughs> this is entirely me overly interpreting the plot here, but I am going to use that as justification for it is a more complex motive.
1: Counterpoint. Counterpoint. Let me uh, try to pull some depth into uh, Ian Howe, our good friend, Sean Bean's motive. You know, you're talking about Mitch Wilkinson and, you know, he need, need to finish this job because his family failed to make Mark. You know, it's honestly sounding very reminiscent of Ben's motive in, you know, many of these films. But my question is, you know, we don't really know the history behind ian howe's character we don't know of his familial (laughs) life for all we know he grew up in an orphanage and was adopted or was simply an orphan for his entire life and therefore he doesn't have a family for which to continue this hunt for treasure Maybe his hunt for the treasure is simply for the love of the treasure, Aubrey, because he doesn't have this family. Maybe he has this complex backstory of this growing up in this Annie-like orphanage where he's cleaning the floors. And, and it's a hard know,
0: knock life.
1: Yes. And dealing with Miss Hannigan and it's, it's a rough time for our dear friend, and maybe that's why he turned out the way he turned out. And I'd say that's, that's complex, and we, we don't know, Aubrey. We do not know that that is not true.
0: And that, National Treasure Hunters, is the prologue to Emily's Ian Howe fanfic. <laughs> Which I promised we would leave out of this episode, but here we are. <laughs> so moving right along um now that we've talked a little bit about the characters backgrounds or lack thereof that emily is so kindly filled in for us as well as their motives and how that relates to their backgrounds or lack thereof what emily filled in for us we can move on to their actual strategy and tactics for finding this treasure and this is a a segment i think where there are actually way more similarities than differences between the characters so despite their differences in background uh, despite their differences in their relationships with ben and their motives this is fairly conserved between the films and that's the fact that i think we can agree that ben gates really relies heavily on wit and knowledge in these films and in both National Treasure and Book of Secrets, Ian and Mitch are both relying on Ben, right? So Ben relies on wit, villains rely on Ben. Both of our villains are following Ben, Abigail, and Riley around to get closer to the treasure instead of actually solving any clues themselves, literally any clues. And this is really conserved, Um, this relationship between Ben and the villains throughout both films. So we always see Ben as this, victorious person with the knowledge right in in national treasure we have this great scene where ian is at the liberty bell center when he was supposed to be at independence hall but he's not smart enough to realize that and in a parallel sense in book of secrets we see this scene of mitch at the statue of liberty in new york when again he's not smart enough to realize he needed to go to paris um so with that said though, Emily, I do have a redeeming factor for your Ian character. As um, you should. I know. And and I'm trying to give you credit here where credit is due. And by you, I, for some reason you're a proxy now for Ian. So <laughs> I'm trying to give you some credit here. Just like my
1: life it, dream.
0: It really. I mean, normally you're rep in Riley, but with this episode all about the villains, you know, proxy. Um, I feel like we should note that. Ian and his henchmen are at least trying to solve the clues. They fail completely, um, but they try more than Mitch does. So think about it. Think about that scene in National Treasure, where Ian is trying to figure out what the Meerschaum pipe engraving message means. Right? He has all of the the message written down, and we watch him circle two letters. Right? And he asks, why are these letters capitalized? And we have one of his henchmen say the classic, because they're important, right? Very, very kindergarten. And Ian realizes no, because it's a name. And that's how he realizes that the silence do good letters are important. So he's trying, right? Yeah, guys, Ian is
1: out here trying. He is putting in the work. He is putting in the hours. He comes up with the solution. his henchman comes up with this really stupid comeback, and he's like, "No, no, no, hold up, guys. I know this one. their names, and he <laughs> is he is he is doing what he can to find this treasure.
0: He tries, he certainly tries, but I actually find this really surprising, Emily. I find it surprising that between Ian and Mitch, Ian is the one who's really again between the two the knowledgeable one. Why? Because Mitch, as we discussed, actually has an educational background in history that right? we that, know of that we, that we <laughs> know of. In your fanfic, where did Ian go to school, Emily? Harvard. Oh good, good, good. Did he was he a history major?
1: He was an anthropology major actually with a minor in French literature and uh, communications
0: Gotcha and did he like do entrepreneurial Competitions on the side and that's how he got into This like investor deal
1: Yeah yeah he was also The um, the Captain of his uh, Schools varsity poker Team oh,
0: This You're uh, taking a cue from the national treasure Writers and really crafting a complete Character to justify all of his Film actions so Well done you Um <laughs> So, aside from their their reliance on Ben, um, another similarity here in Ian and Mitch's tactics are the fact that they both don't shy away from violence. Although as we mentioned before, they do tend to rely on their henchmen to conduct that violence more than doing it themselves. And so examples here, of course, are Ian's henchmen shooting at Ben in the National Archives, um, as well as during the chase scene in Philadelphia. And then in Book of Secrets, Mitch's henchmen are knocking Patrick unconscious to be able to clone his phone, right? We never actually see the main villains do any of that dirty work. They're they're too good for that.
1: They are too good for that.
0: I gotta say, Emily, though, I'm curious here. I get more of a ruthless vibe from Mitch um, than I do from Ian. And I, I actually... Be be objective here for a sec, um, and I want you. I want to hear your thoughts because I feel like Mitch is a little bit more ruthless because we do see him directly threaten Patrick's life um, when Patrick is coming to see Dr. Helen Mirren about the plank, right? She. Mm-hmm. She, he he basically tells her mitch tells her tell him anything but the truth his life depends on it and then he flashes his gun
1: yes but aubrey i will you know and you know i hate to speak ill of ian mm-hmm. but there was that time in, in the beginning of the movie in mm-hmm. in the arctic tundra mm-hmm. where he kind of like blew them up in a ship
0: <laughs> <sighs> okay yeah that's true. But I don't know. I get the impression that Ian has a little bit of remorse when he traps Ben in the Charlotte. And this is really subtle, okay? Yes,
1: because I didn't even notice it, and I'm an Ian fan person.
0: But you also have not been known to be the greatest on minute details from these films. Not a call-out! Not a call-out!
1: dare out. you? <laughs>
0: So okay and I'm granting this This could be just my interpretation Um, I I don't think this is necessarily the right interpretation but having watched it so many times there is a moment after um, Ian and his henchmen escape the Charlotte that he gets into the I don't know ice traversing car thing that the rest of his henchmen are on I don't know what that thing is it's like a like a yeah, I have no idea what that's called. You know what I'm Zamb- talking about—the the what? Zamboni? Did you say Zamboni?
1: Zamboni. We're not it's like we're Zamboni, not... but for snow.
0: Great. When Ian and his henchmen reach the Zamboni for snow, um, he has a minute where he sits there, like looks at the ship, and he just kind of like, as it explodes, he's like, he sighs, and he's like. Right then, let's go before someone sees.
1: Counterpoint. Counterpoint Well, actually I shouldn't be counterpointing this because you're trying to give him credit. But I also like to give him credit in my um he is just a treasure hunter
0: mm-hmm.
1: vibe. In that you know, what if part of that, you know <sighs> that he let out at seeing the Charlotte explode was the fact that he was exploding history.
0: No. (laughs) Counterpoint denied. He's about to go, like, blow up parts of the archives to steal the Declaration of Independence, Emily. (laughs) I don't think that... The archives
1: themselves aren't historic. It's the documents in them.
0: Exactly. They were fashioning bombs to get into the archives with no real care about what, you know, what those bombs were actually going to do or what they could potentially impact Or the people, you know, not just the history, but the people. Okay, Okay. fine, fine, fine. Continue. So what I'm saying is, he has that moment where he he sighs, and, and again, I don't know that it has to be interpreted as like a moment of remorse or questioning, but if we... As you and I like to do, Emily, think about the scene at the end of National Treasure 2, where all of our protagonist crew is sitting on the other side of that wall and have a momentary moment of silence because they just trapped someone on the other side of the wall where that person will now drown. It's committed a murder. I think that we must assess Ian's actions with a similar level of scrutiny. So I know this is, it's super loose and tenuous, but it's no, part one of. I appreciate it.
1: I it's appreciate the, you giving him a chance
0: It's one of the reasons that I just I, Again I feel Mitch is more ruthless I just do which is weird mm-hmm. because I would Think that the person doing this For family right it's all about his Family Mitch um, You would think that person would be less Ruthless but alas.
1: Unless you don't have a family
0: Emily <laughs> put the fanfic away Put it away <laughs> um the last point that i want to make here before we move on to uh our next point which it's spoiler alert it's on character development and i really fear emily's fan fiction you know surprises in that section but before we get there i do also want to note that both ian and mitch do end up working with ben at the end of the films they are incapable of finding the treasures on their own and i like to think that there is a deeper message behind this and that message is very in line with disney uh the the makers of these films and that is money and violence and strong arming which is sort of what both of these villains represent cannot win out over intellect and passion that ben represents
1: (laughs) so aubrey tell us a little bit about this character development
0: yeah okay I have something to say, first and foremost, that I think you are going to like. Mm-hmm. And that is that from a, from a plot standpoint, I believe that Ian is far more consequential than Mitch. And Ian is a much better adversary for Ben. Agreed. And do you, act, you know, I wonder, I wonder, do you agree because of what I said or because of the rationale behind it, which we'll get into in a moment?
1: No, I agree because I think that, you know, I'm, I've am i been joking around a lot about, you know, Ian and his like treasure hunt and his desire for that. But I think when you look, when, you, when it comes down to it, I think Ian and Ben can kind of be seen as two sides of the same coin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. They're both they're both trying to do the same thing. They just have different different tactics of going about it. And I think that in some ways that makes the best kind of villain because you can almost see each of the opposing characters in one another.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually completely agree with you. Um, The way I like to think about it is if you look at the storyline of National Treasure, I feel like that movie is equally Ben versus the treasure Right, he has to find the treasure. That's his one big track here. But it's also Ben versus Ian. And it's sort of equal parts. Because Ian is always right there. He is a true adversary. Whereas in Book of Secrets, I feel like that whole movie is Ben versus treasure. Mitch is not important. Mitch is mostly just following him around. And I would argue that even if you didn't have a villain, you'd have a weaker movie structure. Because, you know, antagonist, protagonist, like you need that. But you could still get a complete movie and a complete story structure if you completely left Mitch out, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's enough dangerous stuff and suspenseful stuff that happens with the president kidnapping and, like, getting into the Oval Office, etc., that you could actually just cut Mitch out and you'd have a full story. Yeah. Um, I feel like the only direct conflict between Ben and Mitch before the actual treasure sequence when, again, they have to work together is the chase scene in London. Whereas if you think back to the first National Treasure, there is multiple instances of conflict between Ben and Ian. You have the race out of the archives with the declaration You have the chase scene in Washington, D.C. with Abigail involved. You have the foot chase through Philadelphia. You have their, you know, co-conspiring, really, on and around the scene with the Intrepid in New York. Mm
1: -hmm. You know,
0: he's very integral to the plot. You cannot cut out Ian and have the full movie or the full effect of the movie like you could for Book of Secrets with Mitch.
1: That is just so true, Aubrey. Sean Bean is a necessity.
0: (laughs) Well, then you're really going to like how I end this episode. Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) So I also would argue, talking about character development here, that Ian and Mitch have really opposing character development tracks, if you will. So as the movie progresses, as National Treasure progresses, Ian gets less compassionate, whereas Mitch gets more compassionate right so let's talk Mm -hmm. about ian we start by again him maybe having a little bit of remorse for trapping ben in the charlotte you know we know they were friends that's been established and the film ends by trapping ben and his colleagues down in parkington lane and being really aggressive about it right i'll know just where to find you if you gave me a fake clue and i will shoot you is the implication whereas mitch starts by maliciously dragging Ben and his ancestors through the mud whom he knows that Ben cares about more than anything else and he ends by letting Ben and his entire family survive by sacrificing himself it's it's completely orthogonal
1: <laughs> yeah that's very true Aubrey I, I didn't quite realize that until now but that that's that's a very good point
0: yeah and, and even to expand on that further I would say that Ian's character development progression feels more gradual and maybe even more logical in a way. You know, Ben is always just one step ahead of him. You could see how that would make him angry and frustrated and more malicious over time. Um, Whereas Mitch, as we've said before on this show, his development, this, this um, I don't know, this sacrificing himself feels so abrupt, it almost doesn't make sense. Right. You know
1: why it might be so abrupt, Aubrey?
0: Why, Emily?
1: Because in in the scene where he makes a sacrifice, he succumbs to the true villain of National Treasure Book of Secrets, which is water. If you remember, <laughs> water was the villain the entire time.
0: For uh, for more on that hot take, you're gonna wanna check out the first few episodes of season two of National Treasure Hunt, <laughs> where we elaborate greatly. And you're right, Emily, in outlining this episode, I was remiss to not include water alongside of Ian and Mitch for our full analysis. Thank uh, you. Because I think, we can, you. I think we can agree that water is not a villain in the first movie.
1: It is. It is not. I. I'm. You know. There. Mm? Mm. Give me a moment. Give me a moment and I'll get to it. But continue.
0: No, but I mean, jokes aside, I really do want to pause on this abruptness of Mitch's transformation for just a second. Think about this. Go with me here. 24 hours prior to Mitch sacrificing himself, he threatens Patrick's life and kidnaps Dr. Helen Mirren at gunpoint. Okay? Okay. Five minutes prior to sacrificing himself, he held Abigail at knife point. And we also know that in an alternate version of the script, probably 30 seconds prior to sacrificing (laughs) himself, he stabs Patrick. So literally, why this ever so sudden change of heart? I would love to know.
1: That that is a great question, and I feel like one of the reasons that we do not appreciate Mitch as a villain, because it just seems so, Mm, I can't think of of the word. Out of character, it's out of character. Out of character, abrupt, eh. yeah, there's another word, but I'm not finding it, so yeah.
0: Yeah, so, okay. As we begin to reach the end of this episode, um, the penultimate section here is something that Emily has titled in our show notes. And I I feel the need to read to you all the section called Notable Quotables. And so I can only imagine, as Emily is our quotes aficionado of the show, that she is going to go into some memorable or important quotes from Ian and Mitch and her reactions to those quotes and how those quotes make her feel about Ian and Mitch I, if I was a betting woman I would say that the quotes she picked are ones that paint Ian in a light that she likes and that paint Mitch in a light that she doesn't like but Emily prove me wrong if you dare
1: Aubrey I am horrified that you think that little of me <laughs> I would like you to know that on the IMDB pages for the characters of these films, there are not many quotes to choose from, believe it or not. So I did the best with what little material I had to work with. And whether they turn out to be good or bad for the characters, you can decide whether or not I cherry picked them. (laughs) Go on. So as, you know, I started in the beginning of the episode, let's just get it out of the way. We're going to start with Mitch because like, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mitch has two quotes that I deemed worthy of noting that I thought were 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 kind of fun but also very true to who he was as a character. Now, Mitch says, "A man has only one lifetime." But history can remember you forever. To which I say, very true and accurate. With your I thought thoughts.
0: you were going to say patriarchy.
1: Also patriarchy and also ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is fitting with his character. And another quote that is fitting with his character And also worthy of all of those hashtags that we just mentioned that we didn't even note as hashtags are is the quote, I'm just a man trying to make his mark on history. To which I say, hashtag ugh, hashtag patriarchy, hashtag Mitch Wilkinson is not a good villain. Okay, so (laughs) now that we're, we're done with that, you know that droll bit of information here. Let's jump right over to the Sean Bean quotes. Uh, Ian Howe is up next uh, from our first film in, you know, one of the things that, I know. Ever since you pointed out the scuba diving parallel uh, between with uh, Ben Gates having been a trained scuba diver and then him being able to like take that jump into the Hudson River and stuff like that, I've been on the lookout for kind of things that suggest that these characters have deeper that their backstories have been painted in some kind of a deeper Mm meaning. And I think I found it here. This one quote, Ian says, You know the key to running a convincing bluff? Every once in a while, you got to be the one holding all the cards. Now, Aubrey, it
0: line. is a
1: great line. It is a great line. And in my opinion, this suggests that Ben is not a very good poker player. Clearly. And maybe Ian only ever wanted to play poker with him and be his friend because he knew that he could beat Ben because Ben could not bluff. Because Ian is literally explaining to Ben how to bluff.
0: It is def- It definitely supports our pragmatic friendship theory.
1: It does. And then, you know, i just like to wrap up this notable quotables section with a delightful exchange between Ian and Ben, wherein Ian says... After Ben jumps into the Hudson River, you all right, Ben, no broken bones, a jump like that could kill a man. To which I say, go ahead and check back to season one, episode eight, where we talk about the science in National Treasure and actually figure out whether or not a jump like that could kill a man. But regardless, in this delightful exchange, Ben replies with, no, it was cool. You should try it sometime. To which I argue, don't try it, Ian. Because if you do, you might die. And we don't need Sean Bean dying in another movie.
0: It would really be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but that is really one of the like underutilized gems of the first movie when it comes to quotes. Love that exchange. And my question for you, Emily, is... Can you say Ian's part there In a British accent Dear lord (laughs) I mean can you Uh,
1: um, It tends to come on as Australian Sometimes Um, Just channel
0: your Channel your inner Uh. Ian (laughs) Imagine the scene I don't know if you're me You can like literally see the scene in your face And just say it
1: You're right Ben no broken bones. Jump like that.
0: Kiliman. It's not it's
1: not his accent. He has a different dialect.
0: <laughs> it was, that was borderline like Irish, I feel like.
1: For those of you who want to do deep dives into buffering the vampire slayer, since Aubrey did a deep dive into her bachelor podcast, that was uh, better than David Borian is trying to do an Irish
0: accent. Okay, well, can you um Can you do Ben's line in a Nick Cage accent?
1: No, it was cool. You you should try it sometime.
0: (laughs) Well, that was thoroughly entertaining. I, I do thank you, Emily, for the notable quotables segment of today's episode. So if you think it's a good idea, I think it's time to start wrapping this up with the last segment of today, which is a little bit about. National Treasure 3. Now of course we know that National Treasure 3 is long promised and long awaited and we have reason to believe is in the works but in this episode considering the characters of Ian Howe and Mitch Wilkinson I thought it would be fun Emily to think a little bit about where we leave these characters in those film storylines and ask what those characters could mean if anything for National Treasure 3
1: dead aubrey (laughs) we leave it dead
0: okay well i have some thoughts about that all right so as you say mitch supposedly drowned at the end of national treasure 2 but i really don't think that his secret survival should be totally out of the question okay Cibola was a massive cavern. He could have climbed back up near the top and been rescued when the excavation started, which we're led to believe started pretty quickly. And I want to shout out here our friend Emily at I Drink Your Podcast. We actually recently guested on their show to talk about Book of Secrets. And Emily is known for spewing out math facts and doing mathematical assessments of the movies they look into on their show and her calculations suggest that Mitch should have been able to survive, okay? So I just want to throw that out there. His survival should not be totally out of the question, although he would, if he made it like a reappearance in a National Treasure 3, he would need a a new motive, right? Like (laughs) So, Goes without saying. Family
1: wouldn't fly anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Barely you flew know,
1: the first time.
0: I would argue, to continue this, this conversation, that incorporating the OG villain, Ian Howe, would be an excellent way to drum up even more excitement than already exists for National Treasure 3.
1: So, Aubrey, do you know who else this is drumming up even more excitement for? Who? Uh, me, because Sean Bean coming back would be great, but Aubrey, I feel like I need to remind you that at the end of the film, National Treasure, someone had to go to prison then, and right. that person was Ian Howe.
0: No, you're, you're spot on, um, but um, I think you might be in luck. Okay, we might be able to put this beautiful fitting cap on the trilogy by pulling back in our original villain, Ian Howe. And that's because, according to the National Treasure fandom wiki, based on federal jail time standards, Ian Howe would likely have been released from prison between 2015 and 2020. Now, I might need to remind you because... Time is but a construct anymore That we are currently in the year 2021 So He's out If The slow build up To possible National Treasure 3 Paired with COVID And this amorphousness of time Has done anything good here It might have released Ian Howe from prison So Ian Howe's involvement in National Treasure 3 definitely should not be out of the question, especially if we're saying that Mitch might have secretly survived. Like Ian wasn't even dead, <laughs> right? Like we he can be he can be incorporated. And, you know, as we said, he'd make an exciting adversary for Ben since he really does seem like a good balance between smart and ruthless, but He, too, would probably need a different motive, because I feel like the greed bit would be kind of tired. Um, Maybe we could get more of his backstory. Maybe Emily's ideas could be put into practice. But I I wonder, Emily, since you have thought so much about Ian Howe as a character, if Ian had to have another motive, what do you think that motive could be?
1: Redemption arc.
0: Ooh. So is is he a good guy?
1: he is a good guy. Prison has taught him something. He finds out when he gets out that he has a kid who he hasn't seen in 8 years.
0: Oh my god.
1: He's got to make up for that lost time, show the kid that he can be, be a good person and, you know, full full on redemption arc. He and Ben, maybe they're not maybe they're not adversaries. Maybe they're working together. Maybe we got a foursome going of uh Ben Riley, Abigail and Ian here.
0: Well, that would certainly be something. That would be so off book that <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. I'm going to pitch something, al- I mean, that I thought was going to be pretty darn off book, but you blow, <laughs> blow me out of the villainous water here. Um, my pitch is what if our two villains, Ian and Mitch, join forces in a revenge plot against Ben? Mm. dun. Dun, dun and stay tuned for national treasure (laughs) yeah and with that i think that's gonna wrap up our episode on the villains of the national treasure film franchise we hope you enjoyed the conversation we certainly had more than a reasonable amount of fun putting it together for you and uh emily where should they go to tell us how they felt about this episode
1: Yo, guys, you can find us at NT Hunt Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud for your listening ears to subscribe, rate, review our podcast. We'd love to hear from you guys. Um, you know, if you have any theories about how or if these villains might return in National Treasure 3, or as I have, have built up a rich backstory for the character of Ian Howe. Please do let us know on uh, on Twitter or Instagram. And mm-hmm. keep, keep us up to date with that. I'd love to know that I'm not alone in this.
0: Mm-hmm. We will happily repost and retweet anything in that nature that you send to us. And hey guys, don't forget that we have another new episode coming your way as we quickly approach the end of the second season of our show. Interesting, right? This is going so quickly. But we do have a new episode coming your way in two weeks' time, and that will be a classic deep dive episode on the Resolute desks. Yes, desks, plural, because there is more than one. So we're going to be learning all about the history of the Resolute desks, how, of course, they play into the National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets plotline you know, what is, uh, what's fact, what's fiction, and what's conspiracy, all right? So, you're not going to want to miss that, and until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. Thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. <laughs>